If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part nine in the series, James, Forgetting Your Own Face. James believes that all human planning, especially plans that involve making money, should unfold with respect for what God wants and for the chaotic unpredictability of life itself. But we love a plan. We love to plan careers and bank accounts and mortgages. Is that wrong? Or can it be done well? open-handed, understanding that some of even our best laid plans don't work out. I read this week about uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews from Europe and the way that they took over time to this old maxim, man trocht und got locked, which means man plans, God laughs. It may be old, but the expression kind of wormed its way into the pop culture vernacular. Heck, Public Enemy even used it as their album title. And given the dramatic, quippy nature of the phrase and the fact that it mentions God, many people assume that it comes from the Bible. And it doesn't, at least not word for word, but the Bible does express a similar sentiment in books like Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read that, or the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, the Hebrew scriptures, or passages like this one from Psalm 33, which says, Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So God's people have been saying something like this for thousands of years. But interestingly, it used to mean one thing, But, as is often the case with ancient wisdom, language, expressions, it eventually came to mean something else. Open your Bibles to the letter we call James chapter 4. James chapter 4, all summer now we have been unpacking one first century letter written by someone called James, at least in English. Um, In Greek, his name is Iakobos and Yaakov in Hebrew, or Jacob. So we've been calling him Jacob. And we're now nine weeks deep into this letter and actually nearing the conclusion. So once again, let's read from Jacob's letter. Stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of the scriptures. James chapter four, beginning with verse 13. Jacob writes, now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone, then, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. 
You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Be a patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm. The Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. When I was a kid, part of our family's Sunday afternoon tradition was after church, we'd make a quick stop at our local supermarket, which was an IGA. I don't think you have those here, but this is an important institution. Uh, The IGA, and we would buy a Sunday paper. Once home, my mom would put the finishing touches on a Sunday lunch that she began the night before, because that was our biggest meal of the week. In the South, you call lunch dinner. It's a whole thing. Anyway. My brother and I would, while we waited, we would pull the comic section out of the middle of the paper and unfold it on the living room floor, and then we'd fight over who gets what we call the big page and the little page, first and second. The big page is the coveted piece of the comic section because it had Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes, which was our favorite then and now. Yeah, wow, applause for Calvin and Hobbes. But a close second was Berkeley Breeze Bloom County, featuring Opus the Penguin and Bill the Cat. Now, Bloom County if you don't know, was famous for satirizing things like politics and pop culture, like a lot of comic strips, through the surreal lens of anthropomorphic animals and cockroaches and closet monsters that all lived alongside humans as if this was ordinary. Hijinks ensue. Now, not unlike something like Calvin and Hobbes, Bloom County used sophisticated writing and hilarious visual gags to poke fun at the human condition and existential crises. Here is one of the most famous Bloom County comic strips. A passing fitness enthusiast happens upon Bloom County's cast of couch-dwelling slobs. He says, hey, don't you lumps ever think about your mortality? I scamper 92 minutes a day, maintaining a sustained 63% increase over normal cardiocastubular renovation. I pray at the altar of exercise. I worship soy milkshakes sprinkled with spirulina, spirulina algae. I am in touch spiritually with my prostate. And I weep for you flabos. Do you know why? Because my life will be twice the length of yours, guaranteed. And just then as he jogs away, healthy and victorious, the fitness enthusiast is struck by a falling meteor and killed. When the slobs raise sodas in a toast to no guarantees and Opus the Penguin extends a snack cake, asking his companions, ding dong? (laughs) In other words, man plans, God laughs. Is that true? And what does that mean? If you hear the expression or something like it, both in church or non-church circles, it usually means something like this. You are not in control of your future. God is. 
So you can make all the plans you want, but chances are God has already made plans of his own and there's no stopping God's plans. And maybe you'll hear someone ornament the expression with other similar ones like everything happens for a reason or everything in God's timing or God is in control, whatever that means. Is that what Jacob, the author of James, meant to say when he wrote, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Here's to no guarantees. Ding dong. To answer the question, what does that mean and what did James mean, you have to sort of track the train of thought through the letter. Now, here's a flashback. First, remember the setting. Jacob, the author of James, is writing to the first group of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem in the first century and consequently spread out throughout the world and across time. But as much as Jacob is inspired by the Holy Spirit with foresight to write something with permanent relevance for future generations of Christians, he is still a person in a time and place with real experiences. His mind is anchored where he was and in that time. And the first Christian community in Jerusalem was enduring famine and persecution. They were being exploited by rich and powerful people. And in their hunger and desperation, things seemed to be breaking down within the church. Some of them started blaming God for their plight, assuming God had engineered their hardship just to tempt them. Others were reaching for connections to the rich, thinking that maybe if they could just get closer, some of it would rub off of them. They were showing favoritism to anyone with money or status who showed up to a church meeting, as happened from time to time. Others began desperately envying the rich and had taken to resentment and slander and hatred and even violence. And throughout his letter, Jacob has been pleading with this early group of Christians, spooling out a few recurring motifs. One, suffering is inevitable, but God doesn't cause it. God can, however, teach and mature you when you suffer. The scriptures and the teachings of Jesus forbid greed and the idolatry of wealth. Money and resources are to be redistributed generously for the sake of justice. Enmity and communal discord actually grow from the poison of selfishness and greed. So be very careful about what you say. Your words are imbued with devastating power. Value others above yourself. Or all of that put even more plainly, you will suffer, God isn't the cause. Don't reach for more money and status, reach for more generosity and justice. Speak to and treat others the way you would like to be spoken to and treated. And now, follow that context and those motifs back to our text tonight. Look one more time at chapter four, verse 13. He writes, listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Skip down to verse five. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Look at verse seven. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable, crop, valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. And then finally, look again, verse 12. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Now, Jacob is describing the 
enterprising confidence of traveling merchants in the first century with growth strategies. They were career-minded go-getters that would outline their five-year plans to make a buck and make more bucks. It's not that careers and plans are evil in and of themselves anyway. Again, the poison in all of it is greed and pride. So the profiteers that James has in mind, they don't care about the poor or the oppressed. They're not making any plans whatsoever based on justice, and they aren't demonstrating any humility before God or before the chaotic unpredictability of life and death in a broken world, seeing only one track forward to more and more gain, selfish gain. It's not that Jacob believes that God is secretly orchestrating this immutable blueprint for your life and that he's getting his way one way or the other. Remember, God doesn't plan or carry out your temptation or your trial or your suffering. It's not that Jacob believed that God doesn't want you to have a happy life or things to go well for you. And if either thing happens, God is going to wreck both of them just to humble you. It's that life in our broken world is marred by sin and it is subject to the chaotic evils of injustice and suffering and death. So when Jacob writes, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, he does not mean if our plans happen to coincide with, with what God has already settled, then hey, that's nice. For hundreds of years of church history, no one understood the idea of God's will as a synonym for God's control. Instead, God's will in the scriptures is God's heart, God's character, his desire. It's, in other words, what God wants. So look at it this way. Jesus, quintessential prayer template our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, includes the famous line, your kingdom come, your what? Will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning two things. One, Jesus presupposes that God's will is not always done on earth and is thus something for which his disciples must pray. And two, God's will then can't mean his irrefutable, determinative control because it doesn't always happen. Meaning, Jacob is demanding the kind of humility that can admit, hey, we don't know what the future holds, but we want to be submitted to God's good purpose for our lives, even in the chaos of unpredictability. Another way of translating that line, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, could be, we want to live under God's blessing, that he will direct us rather than us directing ourselves. Our lives are submitted to him. So if he tells us to do something, we will do it, even if that contradicts our plan. And when we are submitted to God's rule over our lives through his son, King Jesus, by the spirit of God acting and carrying out his will in our lives, we will not scramble after wealth, more money, more stuff, more status. Wealth, Jacob writes, will rot. His words, not mine, but they're mine too. 
This is actually one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Jacob, inspired by the Spirit of God, pulls absolutely no punches. Listen, those of you obsessed with your money and your power, those of you with no heart for the poor, no humility before God, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your fancy clothes. All your fancy gold and silver has corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and, I quote, burn your flesh like fire. And Jacob's heated diatribe against the selfish and rich is not something he made up. It's consistent with both the Hebrew scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. Actually, Scottish philosopher Alcidere McIntyre put it like this, riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of heaven. Or as Jesus put it, it's almost impossible for a rich person to find the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, but by the grace of God, all things are possible. So it may seem as if justice for the poor and the oppressed is a pipe dream, unrealistic. It's never going to happen. But James writes to the poor and oppressed, look, it is coming. And this is good news for those who are just and very bad news for those who walk in the ways of injustice. And injustice, according to James, is keeping my own money and my own stuff for my own purposes. Now for us, disciples of Jesus, the lesson is to relinquish all our lives, including our plans, our futures, our finances, to the kingship of Jesus and to God's good direction. You can plan Absolutely. And you can earn money, believe it or not. But we are to hold both in open hands, ready to hand both over if and when God asks for them, because he knows better than we do what is best. But relinquishing our plans is every bit as difficult as relinquishing our felt ownership of our finances and possessions. For some, it's even harder because we love a plan. Order a spatula and you've got a plan. You say to yourself, I need a spatula, but I don't have one. You say to yourself, these pancakes aren't going to flip themselves. But your desire for said spatula isn't exactly pressing. And hey, it's a brave new digital world. So you read user reviews. You crunch a few numbers and then you order the spatula. Amazon Prime, see you in two days, in some cases less. You say to yourself, whatever else happens, I've got that spatula thing taken care of. You can do this with everything from Blu-ray discs to flea medication. Order a spatula and you've got a plan. But every once in a while, something disrupts the plan. Something goes wrong at corporate headquarters or a driver misses a turn or the mail carrier confuses 4607 with 4706. And a few days later, you still don't have that spatula. In fact, just recently, like last week, I ordered something. It was going to take a, a week to get there, probably less, honestly, rather than the one or two days to which I am accustomed as an American consumer. And something in me in that moment twitched. I think I even said out loud, what, Friday? You know, or whatever. <laughs> and then you ask yourself, how did I get this way? And you have to fight back memories from a childhood when every single ad warned you, please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. And that was a given. And back then, that seemed fine. 
No UPS tracking numbers, no text updates, no Amazon Prime guarantee. The quibbles and complaints of spoiled consumers like me betray a baseline inability to cope with uncertainty, which is bad news because the world overflows with real uncertainty, with real pain in it. The once promising business goes belly up. Will there be enough money to pay next month's bills? Who knows? You ask the doctor, will the chemotherapy work? And the doctor, his brow creased with practice sympathy, says, we don't know. The pregnancy went wonderfully. You furnished the baby's room. You picked out a name. But now you're hovering daily over an incubator, haunting the NICU, and no one can tell you what happens tomorrow. Uncertainty in this sense is about more than just not knowing. It's about the encroaching dread Not knowing is one thing. Staring into the abyss is another. We don't know what's coming, and maybe it's not good. Maybe it's really bad. We've got no plan, and we so want a plan. Confronted with the world's indifferent chaos, humans tend toward uh, six basic coping mechanisms. The first is blame, perhaps the most popular on the list. If there's someone to blame, there's a place to compile our anger and our frustrations. And that's an answer to the satisfying ambiguity. So you blame a politician, you blame the right, you blame the left, blame someone who did something to you, blame someone who didn't do enough for you, blame men, blame women, blame whoever, which eventually gives rise to coping mechanism number two, which is magical thinking. Everything's going back to normal in no time. A fix is just around the corner. My prayers will definitely be answered the way I'm praying them. And don't you have any faith? That's all I need, faith. I'll be good, I'll do the right stuff. And that'll turn this thing around any day now, actually. And so you count on prediction. What's going to happen is this. And you set dates and you crunch numbers back to normal by this day. Or alternately, hyperbolic doomsday speech. Prediction makes us hungry for updates. If we think we know what's going on, we feel a bit more in control. So we refresh the feed, we keep scrolling, and we feel worse by the second. And then we channel that misery into the way we behave, first in the obsessive detail with which we can control things in our lives. List makers make more lists, obsessive workout routines, new diet regimes, more shopping, renovation. This is within our dominion, sweet, sweet control. But obsessive grasping for control becomes tyranny, and you eventually start to try to control other people, your friends or roommates or spouses or kids, biting and tearing at one another in the doomed, clamoring effort for more control. Blame, magical thinking, prediction, obsession, attempted control over our lives, attempted control over other people's lives. Other people's lives, we just want a plan. Now, plans themselves are not bad. God makes plans. Jesus followed a plan. Those guys are decent enough examples. But really, the entire New Testament celebrates the disciplined resolve necessary for a life of intentionality, much to the chagrin of the anti-planners. Following Jesus doesn't just happen. We pull this off by the empowering of God's Spirit, which is no small thing, but God's Spirit does not empower helpless puppets. He makes eager and willing students capable of that which they cannot do via self-effort alone, 
but self-effort is part of the equation. The disciplined intentionality necessary for discipleship differs from selfish ambition in that it relies entirely on God's leading and direction. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Hence, James's correction is this. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live, and do this or that. The plan is still there, submitted to God's will. Now, by this, he doesn't mean God is in control and that whatever happens is God's will and we're helpless against it, so we should just buckle up and go along for the ride. That kind of fatalistic thinking, though sadly popular in certain circles, flies in the face of the Scripture's very high view of good works, engagement, effort, But all the good work, engagement, and effort in the world can't possibly keep suffering at bay forever. Something, somewhere, sometime is going to wreck some of our very best laid plans. Life sometimes breaks out into divided phases of unpredictability and chaos. Pete Scazzaro calls it the confusing in-between. Traditional phases in life for which we are not prepared and over which we have no control. When we want to move into the next place, but instead we tarry in confusion. You're single and you don't want to be, and you're just waiting, or you're wanting to begin a stage of life for which you've hoped and planned and dreamed, but you just can't, a project, a career, or a family. And interestingly, this frustrating fog that feels like a waste Many wise figures down throughout the Christian tradition argue that this can be the space where God often does some of his very best work in us. Now, God doesn't need trauma to form you. He doesn't require suffering in order to level you up. God doesn't design trauma, and he does not ordain suffering. But God is so relentlessly kind and so unimaginably intelligent that he graciously subverts the worst of times to do us the best of good. When we let him, we just don't know what's coming. We never do, really. But we often feel uniquely in want of a detailed map that never arrives. When Jacob, the author of James, inspired by the Spirit of God, commanded, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, He intended to teach disciples of Jesus down through the centuries that in the face of an unknowable future, we must relinquish certainty and control over to God. Not to become passive, prepare yourself by all means, make every effort, fight the good fight. But remember, your life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So we make plans, but we hold them in open hands, palms up as we wander into the near shapeless fog of the future. The thing about these confusion phases is that psychologists tend to agree that in them we reach for a guide. It's human nature. Gurus, the news, social media, politicians, idols, the stories that we've been told, the stories that we choose to believe. And you get to choose your guide. It can be your own anxiety. It could be your family or friends. It could be your political party. And I can only stand up here this evening as your pastor, as your friend, along with you on the same journey of discipleship and with you in the struggle and invite you to choose Jesus. 
Every day, one day at a time, choose Jesus as the shepherd to guide you into the dense haze of uncertainty where we often fail to see where one foot will land as it goes out before us. And in that, we might finally become people free from anxiety and worry, just like Jesus. Becoming a person free from worry sounds intimidating, but living one day in which we commit to handing our present over and its uncertainty to God, that sounds a little less daunting. People always talk about giving God your future, but you don't have a future to hand over to God. You only have right now. The world around you is going to roil and it's outraged. It always has. And the call is to resist grumbling and discipline yourself for gratitude. Learn to reinterpret hardship as a possible pathway to peace and practice gratitude and contentment not as blind optimism or in some kind of denial of the world's evils. It is the deliberate decision to open our eyes to the hurting and injustice in our world and yet insist on the goodness of God, on his faithfulness to us and on our faithfulness to him. One day at a time, hardship as a pathway to peace. In this, we are allowing God to form us into a people, a family that is ready for what comes next, whatever the heck that is. Holy uncertainty, as the mystics call it, is the capacity to live with no death grip on our plans. We still plan, but we are emotionally and spiritually free from the felt need for those plans to come to fruition. So that when, not if, but when they tumble from our open hands, we can continue to walk in the ways of peace as God enables us to make new plans and to hold those plans with open hands as well. If we can live as a church one day at a time in humble reliance on God and one another, then we won't just survive the uncertainty of life. We will be more spiritually formed when we step through to the other side than if we had never been there at all. So we create rhythms in life, rhythms of delight. God wants you to be happy to have joy, to enjoy him and one another and the things that he's created good. Reject the things that bring frustration and hate and discontentment and craving for control. Much of spiritual formation and maturity is about facing uncomfortable realities and accepting them not combating them, not denying them, but accepting them. Things like the fact that we get older, that there are things that we wanted to do and be that might not happen, that some dreams don't come true, that some mistakes we've made have caused significant damage, and that, after all, we are a mist. According to the New Testament, accepting these things doesn't defeat us, but it makes us more free because it allows us to release the illusion of control and worry inevitably goes with it. When we're young, many of us believed that the sky was the limit. We were told you can accomplish anything if you set your mind to it, which isn't really true. And so we arrive at something spiritual director Morris Dirks calls a crisis of limitation. 
out of which he argues there are three ways forward. The first he calls becoming the old fool, the one who continues to live in the fantasy of upward mobility. This is, in other words, the midlife crisis. Far more people, however, become the embittered fool. They settle exactly where they are. They become calloused and numb and cynical, and they complain and they criticize. They are resentful of life and the world, failing to make good on her promises. But a few, precious few, become the holy fool, and they relinquish their illusions of control and the dreams that died, and they accept a new invitation to rediscover what it means to live submitted to the good and gracious reign of God over our lives. We are all receiving this invitation. In his wonderful book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser writes, we mature by meeting life just as God and nature designed it and accepting they're the invitations that beckon us ever deeper into the heart of life itself. Gradually, more and more over time, becoming holy fools, content to follow behind the very good shepherd. We want to live under God's blessing, that he will direct us rather than us directing ourselves, our lives submitted to him so that if he tells us to do something, we do it regardless of our own plans. Let's pray and ask God's spirit to teach us to submit our lives, and our present to the Father. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church give.